Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burrs. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is John Pfaff, professor of law at Fordham University School of Law. He is the author of Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration, which we discussed on a previous episode. Today, we're discussing an article he wrote in The New Republic called Can Criminal Justice Reform Survive a Wave of Violent Crime? Welcome back to the show, John. Thanks so much. So just to get a, an idea what the numbers are like um, for the pandemic year and crime, was there a COVID crime wave and, and how bad was it if there was one? There was a COVID homicide wave, not so much a COVID crime wave, right? So homicides did go up and shootings went up. It's Our criminal justice data is a mess. It'll be a while before we actually have the numbers. I mean, it, it's crazy to think that, you know, we have, we don't even know how many police departments we have. It's between 17 to 19,000. Um, and so we don't know how many we have actually gathering the data from all of them takes, takes time. Uh, but the estimates are going to be that it will, 2020 will probably have seen the single biggest absolute one-year increase in homicides that we've ever seen in, in the country. Um, an increase probably on, on order of the three or 4,000, um, taking us up to around 19 or 20,000 for, for the year. Um, you know, that's still well below, in terms of per capita level, still well below the peaks of the early 90s. You know, our population has grown a lot since then. Um, but it, it, was, it was a sizable jump, and it, it's nothing we can just dismiss. Uh, shootings went up as well, although shooting data is much less reliable. Um, you know, shooting data turns on the police showing up and saying that it looks like there was a shooting there, people calling shootings in. There's no evidence that, you know, things like ShotSpotter actually get a lot of false positives. And, and so the shooting data is much harder to to parse, but that probably went up as well. Um, although one thing people do find interesting is that, at least in New York City, where I know where someone looked at it, the death to shooting ratio dropped substantially, right? So, so the increase in homicides was much lower than the increase in shootings should have suggested based on previous year's data, right? So either shooters were less, people who were shooting were less accurate this year, or maybe we're reporting more shootings, right? I, I think it's important to understand how, for people to understand how political crime data can be, right? The crime data doesn't just emerge naturally out of some objective vacuum as like data, right? In ways that are much more our health data tends to, right? It's only a crime if the police choose to report it as a crime. They oftentimes intentionally or unintentionally don't. And, and so it's conceivable, you know, in, in most times, police probably have an incentive to underreport shootings. Right? There's actually some studies showing that things like CompStat, which is sort of the big computerized tracking programs police department, major departments have now, have really weird incentive effects. They actually encourage police to underreport serious crimes and overreport minor crimes and to knock major crimes down to minor because major crimes make them look bad. And so you want to keep those down. Minor crimes make them look like they're being productive. And so you push them up. Right. And, and so the idea that these numbers are just naturally what the crimes are isn't true. And you might think that in a normal time, police would want to underreport shootings because shooting makes them look bad. But right now, facing all this intense political scrutiny they haven't seen it in a generation, they actually have an incentive to oversell shootings. Look, life is scary. You need us there to, to protect you, right? Um, so we see this increase in shootings in the data. We see an increase in homicides that's undeniably true. Everything else is kind of flat or, or down, which makes sense, right? It's hard to rob people during a lockdown. Um, it, it's, it's the thefts, my burglaries went up, but mostly of, I think it was most it was two things. One of it was, um, you know, unattended stores, right? Home invasions probably went down, stores of closed stores went up. Also, 
police, when they arrest people during protests, can oftentimes get them for burglary, right? Because they're doing something bad on someone's property. And so and if you look at New York City data, there's this massive like two-day spike in burglary charges. It's like, it just blows the data out of the water. And it's not like there was a sudden looting spree. It was a protest and they wrapped everyone up on, on burglary charges. Um, and so people keep talking about this crime rise. It was a homicide rise. And that's a very serious crime. And, and I actually don't think progressives who try to say, oh, it was just homicide, it wasn't a crime spike, are, are doing reform any favors at all, right? People's first thoughts, crime is murder, then everything else. So if murder goes up and everything else goes down, crime went up. Like That's the politics of it. So that that's kind of, it's a long answer, but that's kind of where we are because it's kind of a, a politically messy number to, to give. But haven't there been increases in other kinds of crimes? Like we keep hearing these stories or seeing these these videos from, say, San Francisco, where people are, you know, walking into a CVS and just walking out with armfuls of merchandise they didn't pay for. Like it seems like at least shoplifting is going up all over the place. Reports of shoplifting are going up, at least in San Francisco. But it's also important to realize that San Francisco is in the middle of an incredibly intense recall effort against uh, you know, Putin, they're, they're, they're progressive DA, right? And so, you know, the trend was, I, I believe the trend was actually increasing even before Putin came into effect. Uh, it's interesting, you know, San Francisco is talking all about about these CVS burglaries um, because homicides at a near historic low still in in San Francisco, right? So the entire country sees this massive spike in homicide. Um, not massive, but a substantial spike in homicide. San Francisco's went up by about four people, compared to the previous year, and the previous year was a near historic low, right? And so now what we see is, oh, wait, okay, we can't go after the progressive DA for for murder because murders didn't really go up in San Francisco. It actually stayed low at a time when the rest of the country saw things get worse. So let's turn to the shoplifting, um, which seems like a much lesser thing, right? And even then, you know, it's not clear, you know, most of the time you just look at San Francisco, they're not comparing it to other cities, not comparing it to trends. These are these isolated anecdotal stories. Um, a lot of the data on shoplifting, you see the picture, sure. And, you know, the thing I really hate about, like, the all those, like, you know, whatever, like, the, I can't remember what it's called, but the, the, the app on your phone that tells you every time a crime happens now, right, when someone reports something, right, is it gives you no context, right? Um, and so we don't know what's happening in years before. We don't have a sense of what the trend is. We just get these isolated anecdotes. Um, also, a lot of the shoplifting data is self-reported data by the companies themselves, um, it's not an objective measure of things. It's sort of the shrinkage or the overall loss of stuff that we then attribute to to um, shoplifting is usually currently co- sort of gathered by an industry group that lobbies for tougher punishment anyway, um, right? And, and so understand what those numbers are is tough. Um, so yeah, I mean, you see these anecdotal stories, and but that's true everywhere, right? Even years in crime goes down across the country. In some cities, some crimes will inevitably go up. And I think it's very telling. We keep hearing all about shoplifting in San Francisco, right? Not shoplifting in general, just San Fran, San Fran, San Fran. And, and to me, that's always a tell that this isn't really about a broader trend. It's not, for example, San Francisco. It's just San Francisco and the politics of San Fran are, are kind of wonky these days. Oh, they're always, it's always a political football that conservatives like to kick as hard as they possibly can uh, for San Francisco. But that's true yeah, although, generally. You know, of, San Francisco is interesting because a lot of the people pushing the recall actually view themselves as Democrats and progressives, right? Sort of the, the more liberal tech people who are actually pushing this. It's, it's a very interesting politics there, right? That's, it's not conservatives going after Putin as, as is often the case against progressive DAs elsewhere. This is actually self-proclaimed, but perhaps not quite as much as they think they are liberals going after him uh, because their city is not quite as you know, nice as they want it to be, I guess. Now, of course, in terms of the politics of 
crime, uh, which goes back and forth. And last year, in addition to the pandemic, still ongoing pandemic, we had the murder of George Floyd and the resulting protests and the emergence of the defund the police movement. And now what conservatives are saying, pointing at these numbers and saying, see, we told you, uh, you defunded the police and now the police are not policing and therefore murder has gone up. Uh, What's wrong with that general narrative? I mean, the first problem is we actually haven't defunded the police. Uh, most police budgets are up. Uh, most of the cuts that have happened haven't happened. Uh, most of the cuts that have happened are very small. Lots of the cuts that have happened haven't happened yet, right? Um, so, you know, for example, I remember towards the end of 2020, the, the U.S. attorney who covered Austin had this big speech in Austin. But, you know, the Austin City Council just cut the budget for the police and now homicide is way up and this is like a nightmare. Um, the problem was is the fact that, one, the homicide increase in Austin started before the budget cuts happened. Um, so the timing there is backwards. Secondly, the Austin budget cuts were almost all for the, they're, they're driven by fiscal year, not the voting year, right? So they vote in August to cut the budget, but the budget cuts don't actually start until November because that's how fiscal years work and no one paid attention to that. And then the fact is almost all the immediate budget cuts in Austin were cutting back to cadet classes. Right. So those cadet classes wouldn't have even entered until 2021. So it has no impact on 2020. And those cadet classes never would have seen the streets until six months after that. Right. And so the impact of that first round of budget cuts can't hit until a year date that has not actually happened yet. Right. It would materialize around November 2021 is when we would have seen the budget cut actually go into effect, right? And so part of this is the fact that the timing just never works. The, the size of the cuts are oftentimes ephemeral, right? Lots of the cuts are just budget shifting, right? Um, so, you know, we're going to fund this program out of the school budget, not the cop budget. So we cut the cop budget by $10 million. We increase the school budget by $9 million. So they're paying for the school cops, not the, not the police. And now we defunded the police, but we haven't actually defunded safety right uh, so a lot of a lot like, like new york city's giant like 15 percent cut a lot of it was that kind of accounting game and also i think about a third of what was left of the real cut was all prospective cuts to overtime uh at least half of which aren't going to materialize this year right and and so you know it's easy to look at what the state city council says here's what we're done right but budgets are mind-boggling things, right? That you have to spend your career mired in a single city's budget to really understand it. And the amount of sort of game playing that's going on to look defunding when not makes that whole narrative kind of just problematic. Is there a rhetorical effect though in in the sense that so imagine that, you know, my boss announces that he's been getting pressure to lower all of our salaries. Right. And he hasn't actually lowered them yet. Um, maybe they've announced they're going to be lowered at some point or there's just a threat that it might happen. That's going to that's going to influence my behavior, whether the effect, whether the, the cuts have gone into effect or even if they do. So maybe it's cops responding to essentially an atmosphere where they are being told, we're going to cut your budgets. We don't like you. All cops are bastards and so on. And that wouldn't show up in the timing data that you just talked about. Right. That that's that's fair. I think the the pushback I'd have there is one is I, I I'd imagine these contracts are written in a way uh, that makes salary cuts really hard to do. Right. You might cap overtime, right? That's vulnerable, but I think base pay is so deeply negotiated that that's pretty safe. Right. I mean, amongst it's it's kind of ironic how conservative law enforcement officers increasingly are, given that they're one of the last truly powerful unions out there, right? Law enforcement unions are incredibly, incredibly powerful at protecting their their turf. 
you are right that it does perhaps reflect an attitude shift and maybe officers resent that attitude shift. That's certainly how police departments are trying to spin the, the large scale retirements that, that we're seeing. The catch is, and this varies from city to city, uh, in New York City at least, I believe that your pension payout is based on your last year's salary, right? And because of the protests, most senior officers will never see this kind of overtime again. And so if they retire now, they retire with the biggest possible pension they can ever get. If they wait much longer, the pension is going to reset to a lower base level. Um, in LA, it's, I think it's like your last, your choice is like one of five years of your last years to pick. So it's not quite as strong for LA. Like the, the weeds really matter here. But the unions are trying to tell this as like our officers are all disheartened. But I think what we keep seeing are retirements not resignations. And given the nature of public sector pension plans for law enforcement, if all we're seeing are retirements and not resignations, that suggests there's some, you know, they're, they're cashing out for a reason here. And some of it's not just, I feel like I'm being picked on. It's I can cash out at 80% of a massive amount of money now rather than 80% of less money in five years. Um, so yes, I, I think, you know, you're right about the attitude. It's not just the timing of the budget, it's the timing of the protests. And there's surely some part of that. But again, sort of these technical weeds about pay can can make a big difference about what's actually happening here. On a, a bigger picture level, what do we know and I assume the answer also that there's a lot we don't know, but what do we know about the relationship between policing and crime? Or let's just say homicide, because we'd have to get into this question of whether or not, you know, if you increase police budgets by 20 percent or officers on the street, what causes what what type of policing affects the homicide rate seemingly? Right. So there's about seven really fascinating questions all in that, in that one. So you try to unpack them all without, without losing track of my thread. Yeah, I think right? that's pretty much so, the entire episode for the rest <laughs> of the time. You just do the whole that one question. Yeah. So I think the, the, the broadest question, what do police do to crime? You know, there is sort of this progressive talking point of the police don't do anything to crime, right? They just show up after the fact. Only 4% of their calls relate to violence. They don't really do anything. And that's not right, right? First of all, like that 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 really popular 4% number, only 4% of all policing calls are for crimes of violence. That comes from a New York Times survey uh, done a couple of years ago that looked at three unstated police department call logs, right? We don't know what the three departments were. I think they said they were urban. I'm guessing it'd have to be because rural will completely different. Um, but we don't know how representative these three unstated cities are. We are it's only three cities. It's one study. Also, you know, that's calls to service, right? And we do know that, you know, what really prevents crime is the fear of detection, right? And so the police aren't wrong, right? When they say, when we drive down the street in our car, that's violence protection, right? They're right. Is is it effective violence protection? A completely different question, right? But when, but when sort of this progressive argument, well, the cops just don't do anything, I think is an incredibly dangerous one for progressives to make because it is untethered from the data. Right? The data makes it very clear that more cops do reduce crime. The question, and here's where I think the people who resist more policing are on much firmer ground, is how well do they do that, right? You know, one study that's gotten a lot of traction in the past couple of years, it's probably one of the better studies on this, says that every dollar spent on policing reduces crime by, by about $1.60, which sounds really promising, except the crime reductions are, are rough estimates of the social cost of crime. We try to serve, there's all these studies that... They're, they're tricky to do, right? They try to put a dollar value on the actual like social harm a crime does. And that's where the, the you know, the, the dollar 60 sum number comes from. The dollar spent is literally the cash outlay, right? So that means like George Floyd's death doesn't show up in that dollar, 
right? The stress black parents feel every time their kid leaves the house because they've had to talk and their father kid might get shot or harassed or basically sexually assaulted during a stop and frisk. None of that figures into the dollar, right? And so it's not a, it's not a great cost benefit because the costs and benefits are different. To the credit, two of those authors and several other people had recently written a paper within the Scanning Center where they don't try to put a dollar value on the costs. What they say is to, re- to prevent one homicide, we need to hire about 10 more cops. But those 10 cops will in turn prevent this many more smaller crimes, cause this many more shootings, cause this many more bad interactions, and kind of like, you know, here's kind of the, the mess. And they don't, they, I, I, I truly appreciate that they don't try to resolve that issue, right? They simply say, here are, here's what you're going to get. One less homicide, five less these, seven less these. You're going to get these 30 bad things over here. It's a political question. You no, know, is that a valid trade-off or not? It, it, there's no clear answer, they, and they don't answer it, and, and they shouldn't answer it. Um, and so, I think to me, that's that's the real issue, right? Are the costs of policing worth it, right? Because what these studies show, no one cop reduces this. It's not necessarily cops, right? What they're saying is one person with eyes on the street who can intervene prevents this crime from happening. Does it have to be a sworn police officer, right? No one problem most of our studies on policing have is we measure cops sworn city state county cops but they're just literally it's a one-to-one ratio of public cops to private security right and we know that like you know private security who might not be armed but can intervene they can do a lot too right you know patrick sharkey at princeton has in his has this book called an uneasy peace where he argues that one of sort of the unappreciated drivers of the crime decline of the 90s were things like business improvement districts, right? Where store owners got together, basically taxed themselves with some help from the city, right? And hired private security to walk around their neighborhoods during the day. And that encouraged people to come back out to go shopping. And that sort of eyes on the street. So there's this collective social efficacy idea that, you know, neighborhoods that can police themselves, right? And so what these studies show is that some sort of enforcer able to intervene works. Does it have to be a cop? That's, those studies, only, they show it can be a cop. They don't show it has to be a cop, which I think is the other sort of, trick for these, right? And and so do cops reduce crime? Yes. Can other people serve cop-like functions? Yes. Have we studied those? Not nearly as well as we should have, but it's definitely evidence that, that they can they can work, right? Um, and another criminologist, John Roman, had this great point actually on, on Twitter the other day about, you know, we don't necessarily know the efficacy of some of these non-cop interventions. But what we do know is that unlike the cops, when they get things wrong, they don't kill other people, right? Like cops are kind of a high-risk, high-return thing. Like they can stop crime, but they can shoot people, right? We have less evidence about what, say, violence interrupters do, right? But when violence interrupters get it wrong, they don't harm the person they're interacting with in a way that cops might, which is another complicating factor, right? Um, and so it's 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 a it's a messy, muddy area, right? Uh, with a lot of studies that either overstate their findings, they don't quite use the same right cross benefit, or they say cops work. When they're not really, they study cops and they show that cops work, but they're not necessarily saying that it can only be cops. It could very well be be someone else. Is there an upper limit too to the more cops prevent crime? So this, a dollar of police spending with with I mean all the caveats you just said, a dollar of police spending reduces crime by a dollar sixty. Does that mean that if we spend three dollars more on police? on police so get three times as many police or whatever we're going to see crime drop by four dollars and eighty cents or is there it's almost like a laugher curve of police spending in that at some point because this is i mean this is part of the worry is like 
crimes going up or we have perceptions of crime going up. So let's just keep pumping more money in. And yes, there are, I mean, there are costs to more cops, like more cops on the street creates an environment that's not great or there's more police shootings or whatever, but also is there a diminishing returns? There surely has to be, right? I, I, there's, there's nothing, there are very few things that exhibit constant, constant if not, or increasing returns over, over time, right? And I have no doubt that if we were to you know, triple the size of NYPD, we would not cut crime by to one third's current level, right? I, and but I, I don't think we have a good sense of what that curve is, right? I think you know, the dollar sixty study is basically saying at current levels, like the marginal return on one dollar in policing is a dollar sixty, right? And I think the other thing to keep in mind with those things also is that very few of these studies talk about sort of the opportunity cost, right? We already spend in some cities about a third of the budget already goes to policing. Right, a discretionary budget, right, um, and so we already spend a tremendous amount of local resources on policing, right, which means that at that point, like crowding out really matters, right. So the dollar going to the cops isn't going somewhere else, and we know these other things work, right. You know, there's a study that showed that Medicare expansion cut crime by like, thir- like eight, nine, twelve billion dollars in the states that adopted it just through non-drug court drug treatment. Right, people got their addiction, got their you no know, no drugs stopped in their lives. Either either you no know, the the fights related to drugs, violence related to drugs stopped, or theft related to drugs stopped. Right, and crime goes down sharply, even even violent crime. You know, I think studies just shown that you no know, one dollar spent on drug treatment cuts crime by like four or five dollars. Right, and so yes, policing works, but other things might work better with lower social costs. Right, and and we're also you no know, it's not just you have the 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 diminishing returns, which is absolutely true. We also as we spend more, as, as those returns diminish, right, the opportunity cost of what that dollar could have done gets greater. Um, and, you know, there's a lot, those city budgets are, are oftentimes vast. Oftentimes crowding out doesn't happen. But when one third of your budget is going to policing, at that point, you know, crowding out is, is a real issue to think about. Like, what are we giving up by, by not doing something else with this money? Aside from funding people like Heather McDonald at the Manhattan Institute and others of, of her ilk have argued that the Criticism of cops, especially around the, the shootings of, of often unarmed black men, have turned police into sort of – they don't want to police anymore. So they, they are not getting out there and, and actually doing the hard work of policing, which maybe is some sort of cracking skulls. I have no idea what that is, but something like that. Is there is there anything to this this idea? Because sometimes they point out the data and they say, you know, after protests for Freddie Gray in Baltimore, we saw police pull back and sort of refuse to do their jobs as some sort of – which says, I mean, if that's true, then police are even, you know, worse than I thought. If they're just like, well, we're not even going to do our jobs anymore. But is there any anything to support this idea? Yeah, I have to go. I've always found the conservative argument for the Ferguson effect peculiar, right? Like, if you insult the people with the gun and the badge, they'll stop doing their jobs to so stop insulting them. So it's like it's a deeply non-conservative position to take. Um, there is some evidence that there's a Ferguson-esque effect. I think the best work on this has been done by this criminologist, Richard Rosenfeld, at, um, out in Missouri. And I think what he's found is there's some low-level pullback, but he's been very, he's had a very hard time finding any connection between pullbacks and, say, homicide, right? Um, and so if there is an effect, it's, it's on the smaller scale. You know, there's also anecdotes pointing the opposite direction, right? When the NYPD stopped doing its job, when they were mad, the Blasio early in his term, there's a, the two officers that got basically assassinated in their car um, by the person who came up to New York City. You know, he spoke at their funeral. The, the cops all turned their back to him and basically stopped policing for two weeks. Uh, and crime didn't go up at all, right? Um, and so we've seen Ferguson effects elsewhere that have had no, sort of Ferguson responses by the police that had no impact, right? So, you know, we can, and I'm, and I'm not sure, you know, other than Rosenfeld's work, I, there, there hasn't, you know, 
is mostly argument by anecdote. Um, but no, I think this, the, the rigorous stuff out there seem to suggest that, you know, if there is an effect, it's on the smaller end of crimes, not so much on, on the more serious stuff. Is there a, I guess, a broken windows policing effect, though, that, you know, we've been talking about homicide and homicide doesn't go up. But if the cops are letting the people steal from CVS or the other kinds of petty crime, does that eventually lead to more crime overall and more serious crime? Right. So first, I think interesting about broken windows is that we use that term to refer to two completely different styles of policing, right? One is what the original sort of telling article envisioned, which is literally like fixing broken windows and taking down graffiti and planting things over. Uh, and the evidence there suggests it has a moderately beneficial effect. The other way we use broken windows as a term to refer to incredibly vigorous, low-level you know, stop, question, frisk kind of things. So stop every person you see, throw them against the wall, search them, grab their testicles, and, and then let them go if you don't find anything. Um, that has been found to have zero to harmful effects on crime, right? And so ironically, as much as the, the concept of broken windows came from the NYPD, they've always been the bad sort, right? They haven't really been the cleaning sort. Um, and so, you know, low-level, aggressive, aggressive, low, sort of aggressive, scattered, low level, sort, of, sort of, you know, scattershot low-level enforcement. Just grab everyone you can, the giant trawling net, doesn't work. You know, the flip side is, is there is evidence that hotspot policing works, right? If there is crime on this corner and you flood this corner with police, especially police who act in a respectable kind of way, not like the combat cops rolling in and again, throwing people against walls, throwing against walls always backfires. Um, but if you do sort of aggressively, if respectfully enforce in those intersections where crime is particularly bad, not only does the crime go down in those intersections, it actually goes down in the adjacent intersections too, right? So it doesn't just push the crime away. It, it genuinely reduces it. Um, and so that there, there are policing tactics at work, right? We think there's a district where theft is very high. If you're to sort of have cops that are deployed there, that could work, right? I mean, it's also worth noting, though, that CVS and all those places have a policy of not stopping people who walk out their doors with stuff, right? Um, and so, you know, they're, they're perhaps maybe if we incentivize CVS to have a guy just standing at the front door who just says, let me check your bag. Sorry, you got to put that back. Uh, you, we could probably cut theft by a substantial amount, right? And maybe they don't do that because they're afraid, like, you know, they, that interaction could turn violent. They don't want to do the insurance issues of that, right? And, and maybe we need to think about, like, you know, what our tort rules look like in those situations. Like, there, there are other creative ways to think about the challenges they're going to raise and ways to encourage them to do that. Um, so, which is a two-part way of saying, yeah, at, there, there can be these kind of knock-on effects, um, but oftentimes disentangling them is causally tricky, right? Why is there all the stuff in this corner anyway? Things are probably already bad at that corner. That's why they're stealing from this Walgreens. There is evidence that if we, if we have police deployed there, that can, in fact, reduce crime there and in neighboring areas. Um, but it's also, again, worth asking, why do you necessarily always have to jump straight to the police, right? There are things that Walgreens can do now to stop that theft. They're not doing them now. There might be very rational reasons why they're not doing them now. And maybe we should think about those reasons and how to address those issues before we put the guy at the gun at the at the corner to to deal with, you know, a homeless person with you no know, drug issues and mental health problems stealing food because they're they're hungry. One of the things that bedevils those of us who work in public policy of all sorts uh is perception. Um, I'm always dealing with it in terms of, say, uh, I talk about the drug war a lot, but people really, and you were one of the best sources on this, wildly overestimate how much drug war is part of our incarceration problem. Just like, the, you know, so if you don't get the facts correct. It's very hard to convince people that it, that we need to change something or what is the problem. And one of the big ones in this is perception of the violent crime rate. Uh, uh, if you ask during the great crime spike you people 
accurately perceived that violent crime was going down, but they have not generally done that for the last 20 years. Like you ask Americans, do you think the world is safer than it was 10 years ago? About 50% say, no, it's not. It's a more dangerous now. So what do you think is happening there and, and how can we like deal with this misperception? Cause it drives a lot of their, the sense of, of unsafety drives a lot of these policies. It's that American carnage speech, like Trump's, <laughs> exactly. you know, That's like they, exactly, they ask yeah. these people who live off in like rural America and they think that literally like walking the streets in DC is like being in, you know, rural Afghanistan right now. Right. So actually there, there's a really, that, that disconnect has, a, to me, has a, there's a very fascinating story there, right? So what we see generally is over the course of the 2000s and 2010s, right, as crime was low and oftentimes falling, people, the number, the percent of Americans who were telling Gallup every year that crime is worse this year than last year hovered at around 65 to 75%. It never gets below about 55%, right? And that's generally framed as, look, Americans have no idea what's going on, right? It's completely clueless policy. It's actually much more complicated and more fascinating than that because Gallup starts that question in the early 1990s. Right, so you look at 1993, which is sort of the peak, 93 is about the peak going crime. Crime's just starting to trickle down, but no one can see it yet because our data comes out so late, right? About 85, 90% of Americans say crime is going up. They're right. <laughs> Things are terrible, right? And over the 1990s, we see this substantial drop in crime. And each year over the 1990s, the, sorry, over the 2000s, the percent, so no, the 90s, right? Stop dropping, starts around 91, 92. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting old and losing sense. It's all the distant past for me now. Um, over the 1990s, um, as crime goes down, each year, the percent of Americans who say crime is getting worse, that goes down to 85%, 70, 75, 70, 65, 60. And then we hit this one magical year. Well, one year, we get to like 49. The next year, it drops to like 44% of Americans say crime is up even as it's going down. So almost two thirds of Americans get it, right? Almost two thirds are saying, no, crime isn't higher. And they're right, crime isn't higher. And lost in the data, that one magical year, state prison populations actually fell by about 1,776, very patriotic number, right? It gets lost because the feds jump by like 10,000. So if you look at the national prisons, you see this big increase, you look at state data, States have fallen, right? So over the course of 2000s, Americans are getting smarter and smarter. They're getting more and more aware. They see crime is going down. And the state prison populations that are driven by much more rational policy than the feds, as irrational as it is, it's better than the feds, their growth slows and slows and slows. And we finally hit this point. A solid majority say crime is going down. State prison populations fall. And the very next year, state prison populations jump by about 15,000 people. And percent of Americans say crime is going up jumps to about 70%, even though crime went down that year. Do you want to guess what that pivot year was? 2001 to 2002, right? It has nothing a, a to do with A year of feeling crime. very unsafe. A year, right. a year of, yeah, generally. Yeah. Right, you're just scared and the world is scary. And what's fascinating is Gallup has a parallel question they ask. They don't just ask, is crime going up? Is the world scarier? They also ask, do you feel safe walking around your house about within a mile radius of your house at night? And that question does not see the same kind of 2001 bump. There's a little bump, but not much, right? And so Americans fully understood that their neighborhoods were safe, but out there, that was scary, right? And it, it, we, prisons populations don't drop again until 2010 because the financial crisis distracts us, right? Um, there's this fascinating book called Breaking the Pendulum that argues that this is exactly how criminal policy operates, right? We tend to view it as sort of this, this this constant sort of swinging between too lenient and too harsh and too lenient as a pendulum. And it 
inevitably overcorrects and swings back. And their point is no, completely wrong. Progressive reformers and tough at crime types are at war every day and have been for 250 years, right? It's been a nonstop fight. And at some point, it's not always crime policy. It's always something else shifts the political power that they have. Things become scarier. And so tough on crime wins, not because crime is worse, but Americans are scared, right? Or things become prosperous and people feel very safe and they don't understand why we're spending all this money on all this tough on crime crap and the progressives get the upper hand, right? And, and so that's what 2001 was, right? It was this moment of utter terror, right? That caused the tough on crime types to exploit it. 2010 was the opposite of that, right? Crime is low, crime is crashing and the regressives carve off sort of the, the budget cutting right on crime types. and and things shift. That's my concern with COVID, right? Is that COVID, even though it has nothing to do necessarily with crime, has, which I think it does have a connection to the homicide spike, but even if it didn't, it's created this atmosphere of just general fear. And that always puts reformers on the back foot and gives sort of the tough on crime types sort of the, the political upper upper hand. But that American ignorance in the 2010s, it doesn't come from nowhere, right? It's not just ignorance, it's fear. And it's a fear that's being very politically stoked and managed, right? By people who profit off that fear, Politically or financially, um, and and you know it, it, it's it's I get concerned people sort of say people just don't understand it. Like no, there there was a reason for this, and it tied into how we responded to the terror attacks and sort of the, the deeper sort of macro level politics that that drives so much of crime policy. You mentioned police unions um, and this, you know you, perceptions of leniency, as Aaron pointed out, uh, it's very common. Uh, uh, I know family members uh, in "quote unquote" flyover country who think that you know I live in a very very dangerous place here in in Arlington, Virginia, uh, just because I'm in a city, you know, and and so it's very very common these kind of things. But there's all these different interest groups in criminal justice reform. Um, what are the? I mean, what to you are the sort of biggest roadblocks uh, i mean are police unions like up there prison guard unions i mean what, what's really the the biggest roadblock do you think to meaningful criminal justice reform yeah i mean all of they're they're i think they're all significant roadblocks i think importantly they're all significant in different kinds of ways right you know prison guard unions again this will vary very much from from state to state based on sort of state economics and state Layouts and things. I talk in a second, but state, private, you no know, pr prison guard unions are incredibly powerful because they have so much at stake. Right, prisons are incredibly miserable places to work. Not much. I mean, to be a person in, obviously, but even they're, they're so bad that even amongst the correctional officers who get to go home at night, right, levels of suicidal ideation rival that of soldiers who have seen active combat. Right, it, it is. It, they are horrific. To everybody involved and, and immiserate everyone involved. But in many places, they are the only middle-class job around, right? If you close the prison, you destroy the town, right? And, and that creates a huge impetus to fight. Um, you know, New York State, as much as places like Texas and other states get all this credit for like these massive decarcerations, um, outside of California's unique response in 2008 to their overcrowding crisis, the single biggest sustained decarceration has been New York State. We started in the early 1999s when we peaked, we've been dropping pretty much every year since then. Uh, I'm not confident it's gonna keep going because we're basically only have people convicted of violence in our prisons now and those are much harder to, to change. Um, but but we had all these prisons, they're basically w empty, but fully staffed, right? Because they needed those jobs to keep these communities alive. And the way Cuomo was able to uh, eventually get some of the clothes, he basically offered like, you no, know, we'll offer millions of dollars in state grants to help rebuild your economy 
in exchange for closing the prison. Now, I've heard that those grants never showed up and they didn't really work, right? But but that was the politics of it, right? Like, we get it. We're going to cripple your town. And so we'll help uncripple you, right? Uh, we're seeing this in California. There's some town in California that says, you can't close our prison. You'll destroy our town. And they're right, right? It, it will. It, this is We should not use prisons as a way to prop up towns, but but what we should. Um, there's a fascinating study uh, this guy, John Major Eason, did looking at prisons in the South and found that in, as much as we view prisons generally as sort of this white rural welfare program, which is true in places like New York State, in the South is actually minority, it's a minority propping up pr- program, right? Prison towns tend to be more heavily people of color than similarly sized small towns in the South because those towns have trouble attracting other businesses, so they beg the prisons to come to, to prop them up, right? And so prison guard unions fight tooth and nail because they see their, 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 their survival depends on this, right? Um, and in all but, it's now nine states, right? We have the whole prison gerrymander issue also, right? So when the, when the prison guards show up and say, look, we're gonna lose our jobs, they say, also, if you close that prison, well, let's talk about the politics of this, right? Because it's an interesting census question, right? Where does a person in prison live? Do they live in the prison or do they live where they came from? And when you think about sort of drawing legislative maps, where you live matters because people in prison tend to come from the cities, but not even moved out to bluer democratic cities, not even moved out to rural redder areas, right? Where do they live? Um, and outside of Vermont and Maine, they can't vote, right? So where they live counts quite a lot. And in all but nine states now, nine, 10 states, it's, there's been a slight movement here. Um, they live in the prison. Right, can't vote, counts a person. It's a full five fifths compromise, right? And so when the when the correction officers say, "Look, we're going to lose our jobs," and you, my state rep, like that's bad, but also, hey, you, Republican state rep who has no prison, you know what? If we lose our prison, right, then the Republican Party shrinks, and you're going to lose your chairmanship, right, to the Democrats from the city. We don't want that to happen, right? And so now you've got buy-in even from the conservatives who don't have prisons because the, their their overall caucus size turns on in many states, not every state, turns on on this. Um, interesting. Someone tried to do a study in Pennsylvania and found that the, the partisan impacts are actually much more muted um, because of where Pennsylvania puts their their prisons, um, right? And, and and so you know that's the prison guard union, right? You got the police officers who sort of have powerful emotional support, right? I mean, we are you no know, the first law and order started in 1991 at the, at the peak of the crime boom, right? So we're now a good what 21, 30 years into sort of the dick wolfification of of popular culture. And it's important to know that that's a transition, right? You know, who were the early TV lawyers? Matlock, um, who is the other one? Um, the other big one, the old Perry, Southern Perry, guy. Perry Mason. Perry Mason, mm-hmm. right? They were defenders, right? There's actually a mind-numbingly dull black and white show from the 50s. It's, it's unwatchable, right? But the show is simply titled Public Defender, right? It's the stories of the public defender offices and like the seven cities that had public defenders back then, right? But then crime com- the crime boom comes and that narrative switches. Rather than skepticism towards the cops, it's this full-hearted cultural embrace of policing, right? And so that gives cops a, a much different perspective. Like we are that thin blue line. And you've been told for 30 years on the most popular shows on TV that we are all the sense we can serve you and, and chaos. And we're all well-intentioned doing a great job. And we push rules a little bit, but it's always understandable because the guy's always guilty. Um, and, and so that's sort of the policing union. And then the other much more well, invisible- Real group. quick, before yeah. we get to that, just on this, the the prison guard unions and the the- read the voting census issue this seems you know i mean as people pushing for criminal justice reform a large portion of our argument or if not our 
immediate argument, our, our motivations in this is like is humanitarian, that the criminal justice system is incredibly brutal and unjust and treats people poorly and does human damage and all of this. But arguments that I think we should not let people out of cages because it, having them in cages puts money in my pocket or props up my town, or I think we should keep people in cages because it gets more votes for my party are, I, I mean, like, unfathomably ghoulish. And so how do you, like, it's it basically is a, it's an indicator that the humanitarian argument just gets trumped by the most base drives. And so how do you even, like, as a criminal justice reformer, how do you even enter into those debates? Because it's like, the, I mean, the proper response is when it comes to whether human beings should be put in cages or not, your paycheck or how many votes your side can get simply shouldn't be considerations. Right. So I, I point out that so Virginia just adopted a commission to draw their new districts in light of the 2020 maps, uh, 2020 census, and their commission is saying right now that they're not they're going to count people in prison as living as where they came from, and the state GOP is suing them on the grounds that it's unfair to the GOP to because you no know, these prisons take resources that, to run, and so we are entitled to you'll count. Now, obviously, you could fund those resources out the electoral power, right? But it goes beyond in sort of accepting the gerrymander that you no know, in in in. Virginia, they're actively suing to preserve it on the grounds that they are entitled to this people count as, as people. And you're right. You know, at the base of all of this is a profoundly de dehumanization um, of everyone, everyone who comes in contact with the system. Right? They're never viewed as, as fully as people. Um, you know, you hear public defenders talk about in New York City all the time how the, the guard, the, the, the jail guards and the, the, all people in the courthouse refer to the defense as bodies, right? Body coming through, bringing the next body, right? It's not a person. It's literally just a body, which allows you to sort of do horrible things to that person because they're just, it's the body that you're get another body churning through. Um, I don't have a great idea how to solve that. I mean, my, my general argument is as much as we can to make things as hyper-local as possible, right? To me, it's not surprising, in fact, it's to be expected, that our most progressive DAs have been elected mostly in counties that don't have suburbs, right? So Larry Krasner, Philadelphia doesn't have a suburb, right? So, so to be clear, so your listeners might know this, DAs are these weird people who are elected by the county, right? Even though they tend to do most of their work in their cities, right? And most cities have are part of a bigger county, often is where a majority of the population lives. And that majority of the population that has no real exposure to criminal justice has an outsized voice in choosing the DA, right? So San Francisco, just a city, Chesapeake. Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, no suburbs, Larry Krasner. Boston, yeah, Suffolk, but it's like 80-20 Boston, right? You get, you know, um, Rachel Rollins, right? Um, Seattle is that way. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, Portland is that way. Uh, St. Louis, the city is one thing. St. Louis, the county is something different. Or they now both have progressive days. Baltimore, just the city. The county is different and much and much different. And I think that is because, you know, and it was to me, it was really fascinating in, in, in Philadelphia during Krasner's race, right? It's what you see, you know, so that so the, the Philly police choose a challenger, basically they're the homicide prosecutor to, to run an ex-homicide DA, ADA to run against Krasner. Krasner is sort of the tough on crime. Think shootings are really bad in Philadelphia. And what's amazing is not just did Krasner crush the guy, which you know, there's no polling in these state local races. No one, everyone couldn't breathe until like nine o'clock at night that Tuesday, but he actually did the best in the districts with the most amount of shootings. 
right? So you think the place where tough on crime should be the most, where, where do you think Krasner has failed the most, is where shootings are the greatest. And they turned out the most for Krasner because those communities feel the cost and the benefits the most, right? To them, both the shooter and the person who got shot, both, or neither is a body, right? You know Joe and you know Bob. And it's a terrible thing that Joe shot Bob, but you know Joe, you've known Joe since he was four years old, right? You understand the story behind Joe. And we let the people who know both Joe and Bob choose their leaders. They tend to do a better job than people from Joe and Bob are just scary black men over there. And we're sealed off in our little white suburb over here. Like, let's just lock them up forever. That's fine to me. I don't care about their families. Victims, but not really, right? Um, and so to me, this the immediate solution is to put as much decision-making power as we can in the hands of people who do see them the most as, as people, right? And to be fair, if Philadelphia were to vote for a much more tough on crime prosecutor, I would actually be more okay with that than if like Houston did, right? Because if the people of Philadelphia say, this is what we want, well, they're still the ones closest to the problem. Maybe we should listen to that, right? It's not the white suburbs voting for the tough guy. It's still the predominantly black neighbors of Philadelphia saying, this is what we want. I might not be thrilled with that from like a broader point of view, but there's a lot more merit to that argument than when the suburbs voting the tough guy to impose martial law on people who keep saying, we're the victims and we don't want this, right? Um, and so yeah, it's a huge problem. And, and my basic solution is to try to give the white suburbanites as little voice as possible, um, to not try to, to not try to make black people feel human to them. That's, that's a multi-generational issue. And so we get around that, which we're 500 years into not doing that very well. Uh, we should try to limit their direct involvement as much as we can and try to localize as, as, as much as is possible. Um, so it, se- it seems like we're at a you know inflection point for criminal justice. You know, it, interesting that all this happened, you know, George Floyd and the COVID crime spike or homicide spike. Uh, and there's a lot of discussions going on. Um, do you, first of all, like, how do you feel about the defund the police idea in general? If we communicated, I've, I've said to reporters and stuff that the, the rhetoric is bad and it plays into conservatives hands uh, for, for people trying to do criminal justice reform. But, but there are some ideas there that are not too bad. Correct. I think the ideas are incredibly solid. The rhetoric is actually complicated, right? So lots of people have heard about defund the police. I wonder how many people here have heard about the justice reinvestment initiative, right? Hyper-technical thing. I bet most people listening to this have never heard of the JRI, right? JRI has been on for about 20 years as a joint fed city state program. And the whole idea behind JRI is look, what if the city comes up with an idea that causes fewer people to go to prison, right? That saves the state money. But why does the city care, right? Because the city policing investment comes out of the city budget and prisons are paid for by the state budget. These are two different budgets and the city people don't care about the state budget, right? And, and so what if when the city comes up with a really good idea and they reduce costs for the state, we have a system in place to transfer money from the state to the city to reward them for their saving. You know, we'll split the difference and you get some and we get some and everybody wins. And now we incentivize investment and efforts to move away from blunt criminal justice approaches to things that work. It's been fine. It's done some good. No one's heard of it, right? We're still screaming at each other about defund, right? It went from nothing to something people can't stop talking about. And yes, the politics here are are incredibly hard to wrap your mind around, right? I'm not, I'm actually quite sympathetic to what like Spannenberger and Lamb said shortly after the 2020 election, right? Like your defund rhetoric nearly cost us the house. Probably not wrong, right? 
But the problem with that is that we've reached this weird period now where local elections have become nationalized. Right? Think about every special election from 2017 to 2021. Right? It was always a referendum on Trump. Right? This guy, this delegate in Virginia, Democrat in Virginia, wins a delegate seat that's been held for 30 years by Republican because everyone hates Trump. That kind of sucks, right? Like we should, if you're when you vote for your Virginia delegate, it should be for how Virginia should run things. It shouldn't be a national referendum on Trump, and now they're all referendums on Biden, right? And so that means that when an activist in Chicago focusing on Chicago politics says defund in a way that works in Chicago, it gets weaponized in rural Virginia to go after Spandenberger. That's completely true. And when the activist says, I don't care about that, I'm trying to, I need to get the CPD out of my neighborhood now so they don't shoot me now. And if, Abigail Spannenberger loses her seat. I really don't care because that's over there. Yeah, but you might need the ACA, right? And if you lose Spannenberger, if you lose the House, you lose the ACA. And the feds, who controls, you do want the Democrats. If you're an activist in Chicago who's very liberal, if not, you know, views Democrats as sort of the corrupt party as no different Republicans, they're not to you, right? And they're things Democrats are doing that you want them to do. And the way we've nationalized local races is tricky. But at the same time, we're still talking about the fund, right? It's been over a year and it's still being debated and talked about. And I think if we chosen some very Brookings appropriate justice reinvestment kind of not just term, but even just framework, like let's scale back some things and shift some money over here. Sure, that sounds great. And then it dies, right? But defund is an Overton window moving kind of phrase. And it's going to have those things. I mean, Overton windows are, are incredibly hard to move, right? You know, the Democrats held the Senate for years under Obama, right? Sometimes, right? Because you had all these Tea Party people who are screwing up Republican races, right? But now the Republican Party is where those Tea Party people wanted to be, even though they lost the Senate for years because they had no crazy people running against Harry Reid in, in Nevada when he was vulnerable and they chose a crazy person, right? Um, and so, yeah, there are real costs to this defund rhetoric. It plays directly in the Republicans' hands, but we've had a year-long discussion that a more savvy, politically savvy, centrist term would have just gone off and died in some white paper somewhere. Um, and so I, I totally get the political cost. It's risky. Um, but, you know, when you're shooting high, it's, you know, it's kept the debate going. You got to open with something bigger and scale back. You can't open with where you want to be because then you get pushed further. Right. And, and so I'm, 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 a, I'm simultaneously completely, on, I completely understand all the criticisms leveled at the word, but I'm also much more sympathetic to it because there's, there's a bigger push that it's, I think it's accomplished that something more centrist would not have. This whole conversation not ours today, but the broader conversation about criminal justice reform that has taken on so much weight in, in American discourse is all happening at this admittedly very weird time in America because we are, we're still in the thick of the, the pandemic. Hopefully we're kind of at the tail end of it. Um, we are at times of, you know, extraordinarily high unemployment, which is contributing to, I mean, I'm sure it has a contribution to rising crime rates um, or the partial rising crime rates. We've had school closings, which also are putting a whole lot of young men out on the streets who otherwise would have been in school. That that's So there's, there's a lot of very acute causes that are also temporary. And then we had the summer of the criminal justice protests and so on. And so what do you think the, the – given that we are in a criminal justice reform moment, it feels like – the longer term impacts of it happening during this weird time that is going to come to an end. And are you are you optimistic about criminal justice reform this time around? Are you 
pessimistic? Are there are there some areas where you're one of each? Like, what is what does the future criminal justice reform look like coming out of two years of COVID? Yeah. Each minute you ask me that question, my answer changes. I'm, I'm, I have no stable point on this whatsoever. Um, you know, early in early 2021, I've become deeply pessimistic. So like, you know, if there's ever a time we could reduce prison populations, just focusing on the prison part, it was COVID, right? You know, these, these intense congregate settings where the disease spread like wildfire and not just amongst the people in the prison, but we then jump to the correctional officers if they weren't the ones bringing in the first place. And so now you're pulling disease in the rural communities that are more conservative. So we should all be on board and prison populations didn't budge. I mean, to me, that was a, that the canary was just choking to death in the, in the mind there. But now it looks like prisons are down like 20%, right? Like, you know, as things have gone on, we've quietly emptied things out quite a lot over 2021. Okay, so, you know, it wasn't some big movement, but it but it, it happened, right? Um, beyond that, I, I just, it's, you know, we've never, there's so much... We've never been. We've never had a prison population this large. We've never had a crime relatively this low. We've never seen a homicide spike this large with other crimes staying low. We've never seen a pandemic of, of this magnitude that just won't freaking end. Um, I'm really excited. My kids going back to school in two weeks. This is the perfect time for for Delta to explode across the country. Um, so I, I I honestly don't know. Right? It's the kind of thing. It's, and, and I think I'm, I'm kind of glad I can say on the record. I just don't know because what's going to happen is in 15 years we'll know what happened here. Right. And when we write the histories of what's happening now in 15 years, we're going to show all the various inevitable reasons why it either took off under COVID or it was killed off by COVID or what came after. Right. But I think literally we don't know. Right. And the histories are going to come out in 15 years are going to oversell the inevitability of how we got here. Right. And different acts by different governors, a slight shift here, Delta outbreak that didn't happen this way. Right. All these things could produce a much different outcome and, and didn't. Um, and, you know, I think we'll, we'll probably say, well, this is why it happened. And I don't, I think if we had, you know, some sort of, you know, DC universe multiverse where we could run this experiment across a thousand different earths, right? At this exact moment where things are right now, we would see about 400 different outcomes across those thousand earths, right? Um, and each one will look inevitable with hindsight. Um, but right now, I think it's, it's all just, there's so much going on in such an unpredictable, unprecedented kind of way that. I don't know. It's I, I literally I, I'm, I'm very comfortable saying I don't know, and I'm going to try my best in 15 years to say we didn't know, right? Like it looks like we know, but we we really didn't. And these things that look inevitable in hindsight weren't. And that, that's kind of the point of sort of this book, Breaking the Pendulum, too, is like we tell these stories of inevitability, but they weren't, right? Everyone's fighting, and sometimes this is a fluke reason. Like you know, this one magazine goes bankrupt, this one doesn't. You publish an article and it goes viral for reasons no one expected it to, and that changes the discourse. And you know, a lot of it can be just noise that in hindsight looks determinant. Uh, so that's kind of where I am. Quite comfortably, but terrifyingly uncertain. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.